to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. You know, as we gather together and as we think of worship, there's this notion that uh, worship, all worship, ought to have some tap to it. It ought to somehow meet our emotional needs and rev us up for the week that we're entering into. And yet at the same time, the song that we just sang reminds us of the real nature of worship. In many ways, it's a song of lament. It's a psalm or a song that says, Lord, I'm going through a very difficult time, and I'm trying to hang on, and I'm waiting for you to do something about my situation. Any of you ever find yourself there? It seems periodic that that happens in our lives. And we move through these deep and dark valleys, and we wonder, why, why God? Well, that's what a lament is. And at the same time, when you look at the words to this song, a psalm of lament, if you would, it pleads a deep and abiding faith and trust in God in spite of the circumstances of life. And that creates a paradox of sorts, where as Christians we say, well, well there's got to be one or the other, Pastor Jim. You can't be crying out in pain and yet crying out with firm belief. And I'm here to tell you this morning from First Peter, you're wrong. So I'm glad you're here. And I hope we can clear up that little bit of confusion. But sometimes worship must be about lament. It must be about the brokenness of our lives, the endless days, the constant battle, and that that keen reminder that a better day is coming. Where have you heard that before? That's the lament. That's what this, the psalm writers deal with. That's what we're going to talk about today, and that's what we're going to address out of First Peter chapter 4. Before we get there, just a reminder, our ABFs are starting to get into full swing. We hope to be back to normal by the fall in all of our programming. And today, uh, there is a child protection class. This is a class for anyone wishing or desiring to work with our youth or or children's ministries that will take place in the kids' gym, I believe. If you haven't signed up for that and still desire to be a part of our programs and to be a, bar, a part of the ministry to children and youth, I'd encourage you just to drop in on that class and, uh, and take it, see what it's all about. And I want you to know that I believe that we are fighting the fight for the Christian faith. We are fighting the battle of ideas no longer in adult institutions. It starts in school, even in grade school today. Certainly intensifies through junior high and senior high. And when, of course, you get to college, all bets are off. And in most college atmospheres today, you will find a continued attack on the Christian faith, uh, causing great doubt to many of our teenagers. I want to remind the teens, Lori and I will be back with you. Uh, through the rest of the summer upstairs in the refinery, and I'm giving them this book, Surviving Religion 101. We're not teaching through the book. We're giving this as, as kind of a, a handbook of sorts and encouragement to them. And in essence, it's by a Reformed uh, scholar, Michael Kruger, but he writes in a series of letters to his daughter, first starting at college, letters to a Christian student on keeping the faith in college? How do we answer the deepest challenges to the Christian faith? Well, in essence, that's what a lament is, the deepest challenges of the Christian faith. Why, 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 oh Lord? Uh, in that uh, teen group, we're, we're dealing with many of the contemporary issues of the day, 
But I want to encourage you, uh, parents as well, uh, to get your, your teens involved in that. And, and we're going to hope to, to ground and, and base your child's faith in the absolute truth that can withstand the storms of life and, in fact, the challenges of academia. And uh, unless you've been living under a rock, you know those challenges are everywhere. Did you know that the Bible has answers to that? It does. We're going to provide those to your teenagers. So I'd encourage you to get engaged and involved with your children and your teens. And if you can help us out in children's ministry and teen ministry, that would be a great encouragement to us. You need to go through this child protection process. And in the fall, we will um, start up once again after a long hiatus, our Awana program and our fall children's ministries, and of course, continue adding to our ABF program. Again, if you are in your Bibles in First Peter, and look with me at chapter 4, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you were blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we pray that You bless us. As we spend some time this morning in Your Word, we pray that You would help us as we work through this passage of Scripture to know and to understand the truth, to deal with some of the deepest complexities of life, but even more so to be sensitive to those around us who are suffering. As we begin to build a theology of suffering, may it fully and only come from Your Word. And as we build this theology of suffering, may You meet us in our darkest places and supply us with a hope, a confident expectation, a peace that passes understanding that a better day is coming. Remind us of the audience to which Peter speaks. Remind us of the truth that he speaks. As we begin to fashion a, a, a theology of suffering, may you fill in the blanks from your Word. Prepare us for whatever lies ahead so that when we go through these difficult times, not if, but when, the power of Christ would rest upon us that our faith would be sustained and that we remain firm in the faith, trusting, always trusting. So encourage us as we navigate those deep, troublesome waters this morning, as Peter writes to a group pressed on every side, may the words ring true to us. May that word of truth Change our hearts and minds and prepare us for whatever it is we're dealing with or whatever lies ahead, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at this text, and I've entitled the topic, Truth or Consequence. Let me explain that title for you this morning. What we want to do is undermine, or not undermine, but mine the truth of 1 Peter chapter 4 by understanding that Peter's writing to Christians who were suffering intense persecution. They were standing out more and more in society and culture, and they were being ridiculed, they were being called names, they were being vilified, and even the physical persecution was starting to ramp up under Nero, and, and Peter is trying to prepare them for what is lying ahead by drawing on the hope that they have in Christ, but, but not ignoring the realities of living life under the sun. He's writing to an audience who knows what it means to suffer. Now, in this particular context, the suffering that they're experiencing is a suffering of persecution. But it doesn't mean that the principles in this passage of Scripture don't translate into the other areas of suffering and, and round out our theology of suffering. We're going to get into some of that over the next couple of weeks. But he's talking specifically in this text with suffering as a result of persecution. In this Western civilization, we have been protected in many ways from any kind of persecution. And yet, there's a blatant persecution taking place within the context of our culture today that may not be implicitly or explicitly pointed at Christians, but implicitly, it is an indictment on your faith and my faith. It is challenging this notion that there is a God, there is a distinct uh, binary between, between male and, and, and female, uh, sex and gender. It's teaching us or attacking us for these beliefs without ever using the name of Christianity. And it's getting more and more painful to speak up in public and to address these issues, so much so, and this ought to alarm every one of you, unless you think this is a political statement, it's not. But when the current administration is working with big tech to eliminate the alternate voice, someone who is speaking out against all this craziness in our world today, we are in a dangerous place and entering into a time of persecution, perhaps similar to, to, to what they were experiencing under Nero. There is no patience for our faith. There is no freedom for our faith. There is no opportunity for our faith in the public square any longer. They'll shut us down, they'll silence our voice, and they may not be using the name we're coming after the Christians, but make no mistake about it. If you live your faith, they're coming after you. When you stand in opposition to this whole sex and gender fiasco, they'll silence your voice and they're coming for you. When you stand in opposition to ideological social justice, they're coming after you. When you stand for the sanctity of marriage, they will label you a bigot and a, and a misogynist, and the list goes on and on and on and on. This is exactly what was happening to the people that Peter is writing to. And in a similar fashion, we need to learn from this text and understand from this text what's going on in a world that is changing before our very eyes. And boy, is it changing. I have not seen the speed of change in my life for some 50-plus years, and then we hit the last few years, and everything's changing. How in the world did that happen? When you remove the voice of the Christian 
when you remove the voice of God speaking through His church, when you silence the voice of God from the Scripture, what did you expect was going to happen? What, what did you expect? When you take God out of the culture, the consequences are severe, and we're experiencing that today. For many of you, this message might be lost in the context of the blessings that you're experiencing in life. I hope that's not the case because there's something for all of us to learn. D.A. Carson, as he wrote a book reflecting on suffering and evil, said that there are millions of ordinary Christians who hold that God is omnipotent or all-powerful, that God is perfectly good, and that suffering abounds in the world. All three of these things are true. And at many stages of their experience as Christians, they do not feel that there's a problem. They have brief theological answers that satisfy them. Suffering is the result of sin. Free will means that God has to leave people to make their own mistakes, and heaven and hell will set the record straight. And then something takes place in their own life that jolts them to the core. Maybe that's you this morning. In many ways in the lives of our young people, we have given them simple answers for complex problems. We turned Christianity into something that is simply not, both in Old and New Testament. And there seems to be this notion that we can get all of our theology lined up and everything works out okay, and we have an answer to anyone who asks the reason of the hope that is in us. And yet when somehow this calamity, this evil, and Peter's case, this persecution falls on these individuals, it, it, it just halts them in their progress. It shakes them at their foundation. And it's then and only then that they begin to deal with the deepest issues of life and the realities of living life under the sun. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Some of you live this, this starry-eyed, glassy kind of look, Christianity, where God's blessed you and you've, you've not faced these difficulties in your life. Peter's writing to provide a sensitivity to those who have experienced those things and to pre prepare those who, who haven't for the inevitability of persecution if indeed you're going to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Peter's not addressing the evils in this world like, like death and, and divorce and, and, uh, and, and, and environmental calamities, hurricanes. And He's not addressing those kinds of things. He's specifically addressing persecution. And the way he does it, there are things that we can learn. There are things that we can gain as we build a theology of suffering. C.S. Lewis once said that if God were good, he wrote this in The Problem of Pain, reflecting upon the culture, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would, able to do, he would be able to do whatever he wished. But as creatures are not happy, therefore God either lacks goodness, or He lacks power, or He lacks both. That is the conflict that the people experience when, when the world falls on them, when they go through these difficult times, that these people that Peter is writing to, that's what they were struggling and facing in the context of the culture in which they grew up. It sounds remarkably like the Christianity peddled in much of Christianity today. And the truth of the matter is, when it comes to young people, and I believe that's the front line 
for, for communicating truth and, and impacting Christianity for, for the decades to come. It's children and teen ministry. If we don't get them by then, we're not going to get them. We have to get them. That's why it's a privilege for me to be upstairs and try and answer some of their questions and walk with them through these kinds of things. But they're living in a world and in an evangelicalism that's so dumbed down the gospel that they reflect what has been called by Christian Smith and his team of researchers, moralistic therapeutic deism. We've talked about this before. I'm not going to belabor it very much, but, but the kind of Christianity that they have absorbed in the culture today and even in evangelical churches that have lost their way is a Christianity that believes that if God exists and orders the world, He just kind of watches over it. He doesn't really intervene. So He started it all off like a snowball rolling down the hill, and He just lets it pick up speed, and He kind of keeps His hands off. That's the deism. Yes, there's a God, but He's really not interested in the day-to-day activities. If that's your faith, I pity you, because I have a God who's interested in every day of my life, every moment of my life. He thinks about me. He knows my struggles. He knows my challenges. He knows the end from the beginning. But this moralistic therapeutic deism says that God's really disconnected from the world. This kind of watered-down Christianity also says that God simply wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other. That's what the Bible teaches. That makes you pray to some of these crazy social issues today. The socialists who will just be nice to, to, to each other and all that stuff will go away. The problem isn't being nice. The problem is none of you are. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands and there's none that seeketh after God. The problem is sin. You understand that, don't you? To make the problem anything different will never resolve the issues in the world. Oh, God wants me to be nice to everybody. So what does that mean? I don't speak against transgenderism. I don't speak against the sanctity of marriage. I don't speak to race issues. I don't speak to political issues. Of course not. But that's the Christianity that this, this, this young generation is being taught, even in large parts of evangelicalism today. The central goal in life is to be happy, just to feel good about yourself. God exists to make you happy. And if you're not happy, God must not exist. How much of a simpleton do you have to be to believe that craziness? The God of all of the universe just wants to make you happy. Let me tell you about the gospel. The gospel will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. Because before you ever turn to God, you have to realize that life isn't working on my terms. And those of you who just want God to make you happy and to meet all of your needs and and make everything go smoothly are worshiping a false god. It's the god of this moralistic, therapeutic deism. Here's the other component. God isn't and doesn't need to be involved in every area of my life. He's there for when I experience problems and conflict. (laughs) Sounds like a Santa Claus god to me. the end game of moralistic therapeutic deism, and this is the challenge of our teens and young people today, is the belief that eventually everybody gets to heaven. It's a false gospel. It's a false gospel believed by even people sitting in this room. 
that exposes itself as bankrupt. When something takes place in our own life that jolts us to the core. Moralistic therapeutic theism doesn't work. It never could work. Because it's based upon all the false premises created by the human mind. Peter is trying to address the reality of suffering from a distinctly biblical standpoint in the bigness of God. And he's done it throughout the text, and he returns specifically in verse 12 to address that very same thing. Truth or consequence? As we embrace suffering from a perspective of truth, we also need to understand that sometimes you're just bearing the consequences for your bad decisions. You may be suffering today, but you're suffering because you're a jerk. You made some bad choices, and you did some things that God said not to do, and you're saying, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're suffering because you're a sinner, and you deserve what you got. He's talking about the kind of suffering that isn't a result of me making bad decisions, but the kind of suffering, persecution that comes when I stand upon the truth and I live soberly and righteous in this present age. There is a truth, but it doesn't spare you of consequence. I'm tired of Facebook, period, but, but I'm tired of Facebook where people talk about suffering for Jesus, and they're not suffering for Jesus. They're suffering because of the way they live their lives. It's, just stop it. Just, just stop it. Sometimes, and I believe this is starting to happen, we're going to suffer for Jesus because we're going against the flow. We're going back to the Bible and we're saying, this isn't right. This isn't true. Maybe the persecution right now for us is the silencing on social media, but if history proves itself to be true, something more sinister coming along the way. Why in the world does this happen then? If God really loved me and wants to be happy, remember, that's a false premise. But if He really loves me, then, then why do I go through these kinds of things? Michael Kruger says, as strange as it sounds, there's a certain spiritual depth and a certain spiritual strength that we'll, we will never reach without going through an intense season of doubting and struggling. I know this to be true in my own life. No suffering is pleasant for the moment, but it's refining. It'll change you. It'll, it'll shape you. It'll give you perspective. Only if you follow the truth, not if you fall prey to this moralistic therapeutic deism, only if you follow the truth and search for answers will it be this refining fire that gives us a, a certain depth of spirituality in the midst of the intense season of doubting that reminds us that there is a God and everything's going to be okay. Here's how Peter says it, verse 12, beloved. You might jump right past that word, but that's a critical word within the context of the text. He's speaking to these group of Christians who are suffering the intensity of persecution. They're suffering bad things because they're being persecuted for their faith, not for things that they've done, but for their faith, that faith that has put them counterculture to society. And he looks at them in their pain, and he doesn't say, hey, snap out of it. Knock it off. What's the matter with you? He says, beloved. It's a term of tenderness. It's a term of 
compassion. It's a turn of affection. Peter's saying, I know this isn't easy. I I know you're, you're bearing the brunt of your faith today. I'm aware of what's happening in your surroundings and in your culture. I'm concerned about you. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. Do not be surprised. Don't don't be caught off guard. There are consequences to your faith. Jesus Himself told His disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. It's coming. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He's saying, don't be surprised when they hate you. Don't be surprised when they persecute you. Don't be shocked when they turn against you. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. The fiery trial, a painful experience, consuming fire. It has this connotation of this flame that that burns off the impurities of ore, right? You, you put it through the fire and the impurities are burned away and the product that comes out the other end is pure. He said, that's what's happening right now in your faith, the testing of your faith. Now, I want you to understand this is really important. This is not a test that you pass or fail. This is not a test to determine your Christianity. When he's talking about this testing of your faith, he is reassuring the true believers who are experiencing persecution that God will sustain them through that test. He will work in their life, but his work in their life isn't their doing, it is his doing. This isn't a purging fire to determine whether or not you're a Christian. It is a test that God has allowed in a persecution kind of culture that will reveal whether or not you're genuinely a person of faith. You can't lose your faith. You can't walk away from your faith. They can't pluck you out of the Father's hand. The worst situation in life can't rob you of the peace of God that passes understanding. The worst thing that can happen in your life cannot change your eternal state. God will use this. He will refine you. He will shape you, and you will come out the other end stronger than you were before as you understand that God is good all of the time, and He's been good to you. Sometimes we look at this test as a pass or fail. Well, I didn't test. I must not be a Christian. No, the perseverance of the saints is determined by the indwelling presence of the Spirit. We'll get to that in a little bit. God will keep you. Here's what I'm telling you. God will keep you. So, in the midst of all of this, you ask yourself, what is God doing in my life? Don't be surprised at this fiery trial when it comes upon you to reveal the genuineness of your faith, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Don't Don't be taken back. Don't think that you're all alone in this, and it hasn't happened to anybody else. It's not strange that you will be persecuted for your faith, and it's not strange when that persecution happens to you. He's not dealing with the corporate church. He's dealing with the individual reader right now. Don't be surprised when you suffer 
for your faith. When you stand in opposition to the evil of the world today. I'm reminded of James when he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We usually stop reading right there. What is the matter with this guy? What is he talking about? Count it all joy. The problem is you've misunderstood the concept of joy. Joy is an inner disposition of the Christian life based on the faithfulness of God. He's not saying be happy in the midst of your trials. That's virtually impossible. Life is painful sometimes. The world rocks us to our core. We don't know what, what end is up. We suffer sometimes in silence, and we wonder, where is God? That's a lament. That's what we sang about earlier. Don't be surprised when it happens to you. I think it's important to underscore this concept as we, as we move through this, this suffering, particularly in terms of persecution. And, and as we as we kind of lay this bare within the text and, and begin to teach a, a theology of suffering, I want you to know that it doesn't mean that the Christian doesn't doubt. It doesn't mean that the Christian doesn't go through a season where he says, where are you? You, you promised something different than this. I don't, I don't get it, God. This doesn't make sense. It's, it's not fair to believe that somehow you can go through the most painful issues of life, particularly persecution, but other things as well, without any doubt rising in your sinful mind is foolish at best. For us, we need to understand that doubts are reality, and somehow we need to address those doubts in, in something deeper than the circumstances of life. We'll get to that in a minute. But make no mistake that doubting is not the same as disbelieving God. Do you follow me? He's not calling these persecuted believers on the carpet for the dark periods of doubt that they have. He's calling them to be aware of the glory of their God so that they will be sustained in the middle of their pain. Every Christian doubts. Part of the problem with Christianity and where so many people don't have a security of salvation, as we've taught them that if you doubt, you can't be a Christian. Where is that in the Bible? I will show you example after example after example of Christians who doubted and yet came around to the teaching of Scripture to believe that God was good even in the midst of their doubt. Doubting and disbelief are not the same thing. We need to be very careful when people are going through a fiery season to lecture them about, you got to have faith in God, and if you doubt, maybe your faith's not real. Even if your faith is real, there are seasons of doubt that we all must wrestle with. That's just reality. Remember our friend Job from the Old Testament? Handled things perfectly, didn't he? Only until he opened his mouth. God, you and me are going to have a talk because this, this isn't right. He, he doubted. He doubted. He came around, didn't he? Though he slayed me, I will like. You know, I trust Him. Seasons of doubt are real in the believer's life, particularly in suffering and especially in times of intense persecution. Doubt, disbelief aren't the same thing, but good theology matters. We've got to go back to the truth to, to find our way through 
the reality. For those of you who think that somehow doubting is disbelief or somehow offensive to God, if you would just quickly flip back into the Psalms, Psalm 13. We're going to look at uh, what, what we addressed earlier as these songs or psalms of lament. Psalms of lament are, are these psalms that really bear the soul of the writer and show intense emotion. They reveal the anguish that even a believer goes through in the very difficult, real, human suffering stories of life. And in these psalms of, of lament, you will hear cries of, of great and deep grief. And you might think, well, these are rare for the Christian. Did you know that the psalms of lament in the context of the psalms constitute one-third of all psalms? One-third of all psalms deal with this crying out to God saying, why? I I don't get it. I don't understand. It is a, a cry of lament. Here's how it goes. It's David writes, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Have you ever been through a time where you felt that God forgot about you? Where is He? It seems silent. It seems like He's hiding from me. You don't think He knows your name? You don't think He knows your sorrow and what you're going through? David, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? It's consuming, Lord. Where are you? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now we're getting into that persecution kind of mode where others are inflicting this pain upon him. He prays, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, and lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, and lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I am being pressed by my enemies. They're consuming my life. I'm at the end of my rope. How long, O Lord? And look at the transition that takes place in verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Somehow, in the midst of his doubt, he is not disbelieving. He still believes God is good. He knows by experience that God will come to his rescue. But right now, he's about at this end, and he cries out. And yet, he returns to the promises of the Word. That's what a lament is. It starts off with this, this, this great sense of grief. It pours out its heart, this, this grievous complaint against the circumstances of life. But a lament always ends in hope. Doubt and hope, the paradox of the Christian life. Go back just a couple of pages to chapter 6. Again, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. 
save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of me. And show who will praise you, who will give you praise. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I fled my bed with tears. I drench my car couch with, with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. And it grows weak because of all of my foes. I'm, I'm losing my strength. I'm losing touch with reality. This is consuming. I'm a broken vessel. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard the sound of my plea, and the Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed. He's talking future tense and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Can you hear the doubt in David's voice? Can you hear the overwhelming presence of despair? Do you understand the pain that he's pouring out to his God? Do you understand his complaints? If you're honest, you do. And you've been there before. What's the deal, God? And yet he always returns to a place of hope. So, how does Peter say that? Well, in a unique way to those who he's writing to, beloved, do not be surprised. The fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. This is normal. This is life. This is reality in a fallen world. Verse 13, but rejoice. And so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. The theology of suffering has got to include the painful reality of life under the sun. We have to be honest with people. Those peddlers of error out there, out there saying that you can have your best life now are misreading the Scripture and harming so many people for the cause of Christ. This is not your best life now, but a better day is coming in this life. How long, oh Lord, in this life, if we pass the test of faith, if God and when God gives us the ability to stay steadfast in the truth and to stand against this tide and flood of evil in our world today, there will be times in which we experience doubt and despair, even as we cling to the hope that we have in our Savior. I think the church at large has done a poor job with the theology of suffering. We don't like to talk about it. We have to talk about it. Peter had to talk about it. Why? Because that's where these people were living. Paul reminds the young pastor Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no if. As the world waxes in these end times, while evil people and impostures go from bad to worse, we are living in an age like that, deceiving and being deceived. We are living in an age like that. Know that you will, for standing on the truth, experience persecution. Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. Now from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What is the first step? 
to being sustained in the midst of the painful realities of life. It is not racial reconciliation. It's not relationship reconciliation. It's not your best life now. It is not social or economic justice. The only way that the deepest issues of life are addressed are through Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel. That's the only way. Paul reminds Timothy of that. When all of the world is against you, don't forget about the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, and remember that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, even in times of suffering, for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. In the midst of your suffering, through the teaching of the Word, you may become complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible has the answers that are desperately needed, times of persecution and suffering. So he says, as you were rejoicing prior to the fiery trial, I want you to continue to rejoice in the fiery trial in so much as you share the sufferings of Christ, in so much as you are suffering not for your own cause and not because of your own behavior and not because of the consequence of your decision-making, you are suffering for your faith in Christ at the hands of wicked men, but I still want you to rejoice as you share in Christ's suffering. What does that mean? Just the way Christ was crucified by godless men in an unjust kind of fashion, he is saying, Christians in this world, you'll be persecuted by unjust men for your faith. It's that way that we share and the sufferings of Christ. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with, with, with the penal substitution of Christ dying for our sins. It is simply meaning that we are suffering. In this world, you will have tribulation. Why? Because they hated me, therefore they're going to hate you. That's what Jesus told His disciples. So we share in the suffering through their hatred, and we learn to rejoice, and this rejoicing is rooted in joy, not happiness that inner disposition and belief that cannot be taken from you, that God is on the throne. Rejoice and be glad. Exalt Christ in the middle of that as you build your trust in Him. Be glad when His glory is revealed. Oh, I want you to know that a better day is coming, and all of this is going to be over. It's talking about the appearance of Christ. Now, in some ways, there's a great blessing in that, and for some of you, that's not enough. You mean i got to wait till then? He's not going to give me my best life now before then? There is no best life before then. You follow me? We shall see Him, and we shall become like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That's the best life that the believer has in Christ Jesus in this world. Why are you surprised that you're going through these fiery trials. This is so counter to moralistic therapeutic deism and so counter to most people who preach today the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a wealth and health and prosperity and blessing kind of gospel. It's a painful gospel that has repercussions, and when that happens and you are persecuted, Peter says rejoice and continue to rejoice for a better day is coming. You say, well, why has God done this? I wish I knew. I don't even know why God has allowed me to go through the things that He has allowed me to go through. I have an inkling when I come out the other side, but I don't know. I'm reminded of the counsel that comes from Isaiah and repeated by Paul. And the Scriptures, oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Therefore, rejoice and be glad in Christ Jesus. You see how that all works together? God didn't make a mistake. It's not like the the gods of the prophets of Baal mocked a Jewish prophet. Maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he doesn't hear you. Maybe he's slumbering right now. Maybe he's just not paying attention. That's not your God. He is doing something. And maybe, maybe we'll finally understand what he's doing when his glory is revealed, or maybe not. But God is at work, so rejoice as you share in the sufferings and be glad that there comes a day when all of this goes away. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, if you're vilified, if you're verbally abused, if people throw insults, if you're slandered, worst case, if you are physically paying the price for your faith, you're blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You are blessed because through the indwelling presence of God's Spirit, He will provide relief and peace in the midst of your turmoil, refreshment in the midst of your tears. I'm reminded of the psalm writer weeping indoors for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Only God can do that. And He does it through a spirit of glory. The Holy Spirit resides in us. He will give you stamina and strength, and He will sustain you. And ultimately, you will find the victory assured and promised through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the recipients of this letter? Receiving, as it's read out loud, the admonition from Peter when they're going through the worst situation they've ever experienced in life. I can't imagine the reaction. (laughs) I can't imagine the doubts. I can't imagine the discomfort. And it's just counterintuitive. Peter says, everything's going to be okay. We have to go through these seasons. We have to learn how to lament. And in the midst of lament, we must go to the to the Scriptures. We must build a theology of suffering, this consuming belief that everything's going to be okay and His glory will be revealed, but not now. So we say, how long, O Lord? And then we leave it there. Because after all, you think God has to answer your questions? You think God owes you an explanation? Go read the book of Job when you get home. That'll I kind of clarify that. The end of the day, in the midst of our suffering, there's a God who is there. Even in the season of doubt, we need to learn, beloved, not to be surprised at the fiery trial of persecution. When it comes to reveal the genuineness of your faith, as though something strange were happening to you, rejoice. And so far as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Maybe this is just for you this morning.
And again, maybe it's for me. A better day is coming and everything's going to be okay. And this season of doubt won't last forever. May God bless you with hope. May you cling to the promise that as you wait, He will show Himself to be real. And in the worst of times, He will hold you fast, and no one will pluck you out of the Father's hand. At the end of the day, that's all we have. But at the end of the day, that's more than enough, isn't it? Father, thank You. Thank You for Your goodness. Help us to be sensitive to the recipients of this letter. Caution us as we deal with people in the midst of that season of doubt that we don't somehow lead them down a path that is so extra-biblical and compounds the problem but points them in the direction of the Savior, just as Peter did with those suffering the most intense persecution of the day. Equip us and don't let us be surprised at these fiery trials. In the season of doubt, may we cling to the promises. May we encourage that a better day is coming when He makes all things new. And sustain us. It's all you promised in the midst of the most difficult circumstances and times of life, that you'll keep us. May the hand of God keep us, and may nothing be able to pluck us out of the Father's hand. For His glory alone we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.